You are listening to the Archaeology 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 Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a slightly sickly sounding uh, podcast episode of The Anarchaeologist. I, of course, have a little bit of a blocked nose and a sore throat, but we will endeavour to make the best of a bad situation. And today I'm talking to one of the founders of Schools Prehistory, uh, Kim Biddulf. Yep, hi. Hello. And uh, we're just going to talk about uh, what School Prehistory is. And what it's like to work as a kind of a freelancer in archaeology. Uh, so, first of all, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for asking me. <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit about what Schools Prehistory is? It's a website, isn't it? Um, it is a website and a group of people, really, who are um, want the uh, new history curriculum for England, primary history curriculum for England, was published, got together and started thinking that um, there, there wasn't a great deal of resources out there for teachers to support them doing this, and there didn't seem to be very much coming from government. So we thought we would get together and try to um, collect the um, some good resources that were already out there, plus um, create our own resources to um, give or sell to teachers, because we are trying to make a living. Um, and we've got, uh, for instance, I work with Graham and Taos Harrison of Sunjester, who um, do workshops in schools, but also create lots of um, re- uh, replica objects. And also James Dilly of Ancient Craft, who does the same, and although he does a very good line, particularly in prehistoric shamans. Uh, so that's that's his um, his uh, um, unique selling point. Um, yeah, so we we really decided to try to make sure that the latest research, the latest ideas, most up-to-date thinking was going to schools um, and was being packaged in a way that teachers could use with, with kids. You, you, I've seen since we set up some other um, sites being set up which are selling um, really dodgy stuff um, using ideas from the 60s you know and uh it's kind of very very old theories about particularly why stonehenge was built and calling on all this archaeoastronomical stuff (laughs) um and (laughs) we would stand for that here at the anarchaeologist podcast we don't like your (laughs) archaeoastronomy yeah that's going to lose me some people i'm sure no but obviously you know, ancient thinking. Well, to us in research terms, <laughs> ancient thinking, um, which makes doesn't make it sound like such a bad thing. Sorry, go on. Sorry. Yeah, I know. I suppose it doesn't. Does it? But um, yeah, I, we just wanted to to make sure that teachers man- had some access to quality research and um, the most up to date things. Because um, um, even if you look at books that were written, that teachers might find quite accessible like Francis Pryor's Britain BC for instance um, that's um, a really accessible book it's a bit it's a bit long maybe for teachers to, to digest the whole thing but um, even in there it doesn't because it's a few years old it doesn't have the most recent um, research about for instance the coming of um, 
uh, farming and yeah. the new radiocarbon dates with the Bayesian modeling um, yeah. of the um, uh, causeway enclosures yeah. that Alistair Whittle and the rest of them are doing. So it's um, th- this is the kind of thing that we wanted to make sure was uh, was getting to teachers. So they yeah. they weren't teaching basically the wrong thing, I think. Um, but then again, that kind of strays into the idea of what is right and what is wrong <laughs> and what is a fact. No, of course. <laughs> so yes, I mean, I think uh, I hope I hope what I'm doing isn't dumbing it down at all. But yeah, yeah. Um, I do I do try and package it in a way that teachers have some solid content yeah. that they feel that they are happy to teach you know no of course and it's i mean that's always a danger for making stuff like i mean not everybody knows bayesian uh modeling not everybody understands oh, no. like you know the way in which we create information and i mean ultimately you know that is a challenge within itself in all aspects of archaeology is communicating that effectively but how it works yeah but i mean that's that's a challenge for for any archaeologist in general i think um you know for me i think it is i think it is every time you meet someone and you say you're an archaeologist they think you work for a university yeah um rather than uh, as me i'm a freelance or work for a museum um and my husband's a commercial archaeologist for instance and to explain to them the whole world of commercial archaeology is kind of it's nobody knows nobody has a clue of how that works no exactly and people ask me uh what what do commercial archaeologists do what what do archaeologists do and i say well every time a building needs to be built there needs to be an archaeological survey and they go what what really i said yes oh okay i know that must suck in the recession yeah (laughs) 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 yeah it kind of turns a light switch on for them when you explain it doesn't Mm -hmm. it it's kind of oh so that's how it works yeah and and then they can they can link it so much more to what's going on around them um rather than uh, just this esoteric uh, uh, um subject that's only studied in the ivory towers of uh, of Oxford or Cambridge, yeah, um, or or alternatively, like a quaint little, you know, oh, that's a little hobby, you know, digging up stuff yeah. and all this. Especially, obviously, especially when you have big news stories about, um, you know, coin hoards found by metal detectorists, you know, who obviously yeah. do have their metal detecting as a hobby. You know, you never find a commercial metal detectorist or a professional metal detectorist. Yeah, you know, no. and I think that image because people conflate archaeologists, well, commercial archaeologists. This is where I get into dangerous territory, obviously. Um, but commercial and professional archaeologists with metal detectorists, hobby metal detectorists, um, yeah. people conflate the two. Uh, although I'm sure that's a that's a different conversation. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> no, go on. Especially go on. when the metal detecting stories are the ones that get really big coverage. Yeah, like the recent one in my my county where I live in, in Buckinghamshire um, with a huge Anglo-Saxon um, coin hoard being found uh, by a metal detectorist and it's, and it's you know, it's made the news in Australia um, yeah. because that's much, much bigger than um, a find by a commercial archaeology group even though, uh, well, the only one other, other thing that has made the news in Australia was Oxford Archaeology's dig of the northern French Anzac war graves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, that's because it's got the link to Anzac troops. Um, but other than that, it wouldn't... Uh, yeah, commercial archaeology just doesn't make the news at all, really. Um, I, I think there's also sometimes that commercial sensitivity as well, though, that you can't actually... 
you don't know if you can tell people about what you found because the client holds the confidentiality. Yeah, so yeah. that works against against um, commercial archaeologists as well. Exactly, exactly. And th- this is the whole environment in which archaeology in the UK um, uh, kind of yeah. operates. And it's kind of it is sad. It is sad that it operates in such a way. But it just does highlight the need for better communication between archaeologists and the general public. And uh, uh, yes. with other groups as well. I mean, the thing is, for me, archaeology archaeologists aren't, uh, can't, or shouldn't be confined to just archaeology. You know, I think archaeologists can be scientists, archaeologists can be philosophers. They can do the whole shebang. And I think that's yeah. what's so important by archaeology is that archaeology isn't its own niche or it shouldn't be its own niche it, uh, in fact it draws upon so many other faculties and ways of knowing things that it's almost like a it's almost like a meta study it's a meta idea yeah and for me communicating that fluidity of archaeology is extremely important because you have to you have to convince not only the general public who I'm sure would take it very readily and understand that completely it's archaeologists they're like no no I, I yeah, study the past. the past you know yeah that's it and that and I think that we we insularize ourselves yeah. um from the outside world uh, we take what we want but we don't don't give anything back but i'm not sure it's because it's a selfish thing i think it's um an inferiority complex because i feel that archaeology is possibly still not um it uh it it doesn't have confidence in its own um ideas about the world which could as you say Mm. they could easily be incorporated into a philosophy of um of science, philosophy of history, philosophy of, you know, mm-hmm. um, but archaeologists stick to the close study of the past rather than widening it out at all. Mm-hmm. And then those people who do widen it out to study huge processes, of course, which isn't, isn't fashionable in archaeology anyway, <laughs> um, uh, like Jared Diamond, for instance, mm-hmm. he doesn't draw on any archaeology, hardly. Um, it's, it's, he, because it's not out there, to be drawn upon i don't know uh, <laughs> it's okay yeah i think there's I a think lot to do it. with um different little things like uh, authority and identity and basically feeling that you're doing the right thing you know yeah. because a lot of the time archaeologists are kind of questioned well why are you doing that it's not going to get you any money uh, you know <laughs> or you know it's almost like uh, commercial like archaeologists are underpaid across the board you know it's undervalued oh, yeah. For what it is and um i think that archaeology has to you know come out of the slump of valuing itself on money you know ultimately archaeologists do what they enjoy doing and it just so happens that they are able to get money to feed themselves and live somewhere you know i i I have yet to meet an archaeologist who at the end of their day goes right archaeologist hat goes off you know i'm not an archaeologist anymore i think to me it's it's almost like it's a it's it's a vocal uh like vocational profession not just a kind of other profession i think there's some jobs where you kind of leave the office at the end of the day whereas in archaeology you don't really leave the office and uh, i think that's what makes it special and that's what we need to kind of work on yes but then again maybe maybe it's that specialness that we need to combat the idea because of it you know in other sciences that's that's it's it's very much the same Mm -hmm. um 
you know, when uh, because I've been very interested in evolutionary biology recently, I've been following um, a lot of science communication um, things because this is what I, you know, I, I really do archaeological communication. That's what I do. Um, and to segue into science communication was was at the back of my mind for a while. Um, and you know, getting to know more about that is definitely the same. The, the bad pay, um, you know, working, uh, you, it's always on your mind. You bring it home. You talk. You do. You do your own little projects. Um, I think that that archaeology should recognise it. Um, its affinity with other um, uh, other areas. And I quite like um, recently seeing that um, instead of amateur archaeologists or uh, community archaeologists, um, there's a new a new term being used, taken from science, which is citizen archaeologists, as opposed to citizen scientists. Yeah. And I think um, anything that that kind of creates those parallels and and opens archaeologists' eyes to the way that other people work, I think is a is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I remember going to a conference once in Manchester. I can't remember what it was now. It's been a long time since I went. I've been to a conference, um, but it. We were talking about um, communicating to the public, um, and I was saying, well, you know, the public aren't there nine to five. They're working as well, and we need to be prepared to work in the evenings and weekends if we're going to communicate with with the public. And I was coming from a bit, you know, a bit of a museum background anyway, so there you go. But it created an uproar with everyone saying, but we already work such long hours for so little pay. I'm not doing any extra. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of not really the point. You know, everybody does it. I, in every every um, profession that I've come across with friends, they're all, like teachers, for instance, they're always working hugely long hours um, for not very much pay. Uh, I don't think it's something common to archaeology, and sometimes that insularity do- and sense of specialness overwhelms um archaeologists a little bit (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure you'll get some uh snide comments because obviously archaeologists can't do five minutes without being angry in some form uh but of course you know i think you know there's an undervaluation of a lot of different um uh, subjects it doesn't matter where you work but interesting actually you talk about science communicators you know like uh, you know, I have my own problems with, um, especially the, the American lot. We know who they are. Uh, but we need our own Neil deGrasse Tyson. We need our own Bill Nye. And uh, as archaeologists, we actually do have them. But the problem is the people who are the archetypes for archaeology, I like that, I'm going to use that sometime, uh, are fictional. That's our problem. And, you know, that, that the problem is that yeah, we do have a yeah. guy who uh, talk, who is archaeology. When you think about archaeology, you go to him. And his name is Indiana Jones. And he <laughs> is our Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's our Bill Nye. And that's in terms of communication. Because ultimately, the first time people come across archaeology, right? I bet you, I bet you, a good number of them, the first time they think about an archaeologist, they think of Mr. Jones. Or Dr. <laughs> Jones, I don't know. Where did he get his PhD from? Ah, the University of, you know, stealing stuff. Ugh, well, that was the 1930s, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> uh, it's funny you should say that, because when I was growing up watching Indiana Jones, I had no idea he was an archaeologist. I, I thought he was just an adventurer. 
Um, and my first real taste of archaeology was Time Team, and that's when I saw what real archaeology was. Mm. Although, of course, whether that is uh, <laughs> really the real archaeology is another question. But um, uh, for another time, yeah, that that was that was when I really understood <laughs> what it was supposed to be. It was supposed mm. to be investigating a theory, coming up with some results, and and seeing if your original theory was right. Yeah, yeah. It very much in a in a kind of science method way, um, scientific method. Uh, but Indiana Jones, I, it never really clicked until I went to university and people said, oh, so did you get into it because of Indiana Jones? Yeah. It's like, what? He's, <laughs> oh, yeah, he is, I suppose, yeah. So, yeah, it's, weird. It's funny how it works like that, isn't it? It, it? it seems to me that you very much come across as the, on the sci- kind of the scientific side of things. Obviously, uh, we've got to the point in archaeology where, you know, we've gone to processionalism, we've gone through post-processionalism, and now we're on, like, post-post uh, processionalism, yeah. you know. Uh, we're all at the moment, yeah. It, it, but I think that's actually more intriguing than uh, having a singular kind of unified idea. I think for me... I think so. You know, but I yeah. think we... Sorry, I'd, I would really like... I don't... I didn't... Some of... I think uh, the problem that we do is that we throw out quite a lot of useful stuff. We throw out the baby with the bathwater. So we threw out some quite interesting ideas with processualism when we came up with post-processualism. Um, and similarly, I think quite a lot of... Uh, um, of what was good about post-processualism about the relativism um, but not too relative uh, <laughs> is, has been thrown out and now there's all these ideas I mean I'm, I'm very much out of the university world and at the moment and, and out of that theoretical what's going on in theory um, with the agency and uh, interpretive archaeologies or whatever um, uh, but I find it that it's kind of like people just blowing in the wind they don't really they're trying to find it's like they're creating their own religion um based on scraps of ideas taken from other places and i i wonder if um our our theory isn't very um well organized it's, mm. and it's not well what what am i trying to say saying is that it's it is it's just a case of whim and fashion Ooh. about what's in with theory and what's not and not necessarily based on evidence at all. That, those, are, those are tough words, and I'm sure it's a th- tough theoretical pill to swallow. <laughs> but um, actually, I, I, I want to challenge you on that, actually. Uh, okay. I want to say that actually our uh, our situation is a little bit reverse. Um, I actually, I think we're in such a... We're in what I would call a buffer, a buffer zone, right? So basically, when you have, um, for example, um, well, uh, any sort of acid that's uh, a low dis- uh, dissociative acid, what you have is you have the exchange of hydrogen ions, um, but you have it in a certain... Uh, if you have a buffer, you have basically a mixture that will regulate depending on how much um, acid you have. So if you have a weak acid that dissociates uh, only a small bit and you add o- more acid to the system, you'll get your precipitate. If you take away acid from the system, it will dissociate more. So what we have is we have a situation between processional and post-processional where we have a buffer in the middle where you know we can kind of take a little bit more from the sciencey side and then we can maybe, and then, well, okay, you know, we've got a bit of science, then we need to look a bit more of our theory. Because ultimately, science can tell us uh, what is physically happening. It can give us data. 
but what can we really do with that data without interpreting? And that's really uh, yeah. what the clincher is. For me, interpret uh, like theory is about holding up a mirror to what you're doing, right? It's saying, right, I've I've suggested based on this data, I've interpreted it in this way. Now let me deconstruct the way I've interpreted it so that I can talk about the biases I may hold. It's it to yeah. me, uh, theory is about saying actually, you know, science tries to be objective, but I'm not objective. And that's yeah. ultimately, for me, theory is about humility. It's about saying that, yes, I could be influenced by outside context, you know, and I could, I, you know, like, for example, I can't give um, uh, certain views. You know, like, I couldn't give you a, a an idea about uh, what, what colonial structures, what under, living under colonial structures could be like. Um, I mean, the thing is, I haven't even faced racism because I'm white. You know, you know nobody's right. said, like, nobody's spat at me in the street. Nobody's said anything to me ever in my life because I'm, you know, I'm European. Yeah. So, I like, uh, you know, could I theoretically give you an opinion of what it's like to, what it, how, how to interpret things at a site where maybe during the American slave era? No. I, I like I can't, but could somebody who's a person of color who's lived in America who understands cultural nuance there understands the history as well as the archaeology could they give you a better idea? Probably, you know. Yep. And theory allows us to kind of explore our own faults in the way we interpret. Because I think sometimes what annoys me about science communication is that almost it says, look. This is science, you can't disagree with it, and you have to accept even our little, you know, like, even when we've adjusted, you know, and made assumptions. You know, for me, yeah. any, 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 uh, like, any time anybody says, well, you know, you know, maybe there's a few bit more going on that science can't explain right now. People are like, oh, no, no, you can't say that by science. Science is the truth. And if you don't believe science 100%, blah, 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 blah. You know, it, it, it does sometimes feel as if... It does sometimes feel like that. But that um, that's, mm -hmm. yeah, that's... You see where I'm coming from. Taking it too far, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. it's about... It's about belief in the scientific methods to be able to yeah. um, discover truths yeah. about the world. It's a hammer, you know. Uh, it's it's a tool. Uh, for me, yeah. ultimately, science has become uh, something that, well, should, in all sense of the word, be available to everybody. But what's happened is it, you find it's people who are uh, more wealthy who become... You know, who have access to good education, who become scientists, who can make a career out of science. You know, whereas I, I would like to see more people from different backgrounds doing science. Yeah, you could say the same about archaeology. Exactly. Um, that's a very good point, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, or in my field, <laughs> working in museums, mm -hmm. there is no, there's no difference. You have to, mm -hmm. to get a job in a museum, the lowliest job you need well in uh, as long as you're not a visitor assist services assistant and then yeah. people sometimes if they can't you know get their ma or they can't volunteer because they can't uh, afford yeah. it yeah. they try to do a visitor services but it, it's not a way in it really isn't because then you're stuck in that role yeah. and it doesn't give you any other transferable skills to move into any any other job in the museum sector which is really rubbish yeah, yeah. um so and, and i managed um 
to to get the MA and I managed to get you know that experience and and be able to mm-hmm. to get jobs in it because yeah as you say of my privileged background mm-hmm. um and uh it is a problem uh in this field i mean there the, the thing is that there are um a lot of other um Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the word? Careers where, yeah. or, or, um, areas where the, um, Career path is very clear. clear. Career, yeah, but, but yes, and, and, yes, I guess it is. I think that's it. The career path is clearer. Um, and the, the intake of, of students in university is much more diverse. Um, possibly because it's, it's much clearer what you actually do with that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> degree at the end of it. And, and that you can, you can probably predict, um, what you're going to earn and that you'd be earning more than an archaeologist, which isn't saying much. Um, really, but so, but, um, yeah, it would be nice to see more diversity in archaeology. Absolutely. Um, how do, how does that work? I mean, in, (laughs) for instance, in, in, in museum world, if I go to that again, um, there was a program run by the museum association called diversify, which was to, Mm -hmm. um, give, uh, grants to, um, people from diverse backgrounds, um, uh, and get them placements in museums. So they got work experience, but they had re- remuneration as well. Um, yeah. and that has, that has worked to a certain extent, but you know, it's, it was a small scale yeah. project, uh, maybe about 30 people involved. I can't remember in, in total. I mean, at the moment, there's the, all these, um, heritage traineeships as well. Yeah. Heritage skills for the future isn't it yeah yeah um uh but um having worked with quite a few of them when i I worked at pit rivers museum recently i'm not sure that they are necessarily diversifying the workforce there's a little bit of that but um it does at least give people who don't have um the opportunity to to volunteer because they need to make money yeah um that that in into the yeah. into the area and and that has definitely got them work so that's yeah. good yeah. those were those ones have worked as far as i can see it would be nice <laughs> and i think there's sort of um talk i mean uh you know of the new chartered organization the chartered institute for archaeologists Woo! Yeah. um i know that there's um i'm sure that they've been talking about career paths uh, and making those a bit more clear for people. It would be nice, actually, to see um, the museum sector also make up career paths, because ultimately that's, you know, as you highlight, one of the things that does kind of turn people away. I mean, there are people who ask me, why well, why do you do archaeology, man? You're not going to get any money. I mean, like, you're in Aberdeen. Why don't you just do chemistry, do oil? I'm like, uh, I don't like oil. <laughs> but, like, you know, th- there's... Um, you know, and and I know how much they earn. Trust me, it's a lot. Um, you could probably wow. feed about four archaeologists on their wage. Uh, but <laughs> um, I think I think for me, archaeology, as I said, is a vocational thing. But that doesn't that shouldn't undervalue it. You know, it's just because people enjoy doing it and you know just enjoy their the way they work. That doesn't mean that we should you know, we could get away with paying them nothing. Because I think that's almost like, oh, here you are in the museum, here you are, you know, enjoying yourself. Well, you know, if yeah. you, we pay you a little bit less, you know. 
And the, and the other thing is yeah. that it also, low wages means that there's high labor co- demand or high la- labor competition, right? So basically, oh, well, if you won't do it, somebody else will. Yeah, it's the it's times like these. I look more and more at the Communist Manifesto, and I look at what Marx and Engels have said, and I think to myself, "Damn, <laughs> they were right." <laughs> but as uh, you know, uh, you know, where can we go with that? You know, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's nice to talk about you know changing uh, certain outlooks for people, but we need to do a lot ourselves. I think to me, if we make history in the past more important in the public sphere we'll gain something from that but uh, yeah and i think i think we're paused we're we're poised i should say um at that point really because this is the first time since and i know it's not happening in scotland or northern ireland or wales but it is the (laughs) first time that that prehistory has been studied in schools um since probably the 60s when it was really popular and and rick wheeler was on the tv and everything um uh and i think that with this generation of children as long as the curriculum doesn't change again after the election um then they will get to learn and their parents will be learning and the teachers will be learning and it will be and there'll be so much more about it in the public sphere um that that there might well be a, at least a um, a resurgence of interest in prehistory, at least. Yeah. Um, although the, the curriculum, of course, does cover um, Roman and post-Roman stuff too. Um, but I'm not really very interested in that. I mean, to be <laughs> absolutely fair, like, you know, when we do say prehistory, we are talking about, you know, um, Paleolithic and Neolithic, aren't we? We're not talking about Pleistocene. No, that would be interesting. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here are yeah. here are a number of human uh, hominid species. I don't yes. know. <laughs> I've actually then can you ask me a question? Can you ask me a question? What is a Neanderthal? What is a Neanderthal? Because obviously, like if we de if we demark species in a general sense as the basically they're um animals which cannot successfully crossbreed, right? Where does that place Neanderthals? I know, it's really interesting because technically they're supposed to have evolved from Homo heidelbergensis in Europe yeah, yeah. while we evolved from Homo erectus or Homo heidelbergensis in Africa. And then we came across each other and apparently interbred, which all the mo- most recent studies seem to confirm, yeah. I'm, and, and, and left fertile offspring. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's really it's it's a bit strange because that is not the definition of uh, of a species, absolutely. But then, you know, when we think of um, definitions in uh-huh. science, as you were saying, it's all very cut and dried, and you know, little boxes, and and this is how it is. But a species is is one of our labels, and um, uh, it's not necessarily the, the the actual animals involved in that species. The population of that species may well not behave as we want them to behave. Um, so possibly uh, that means that the family tree of humans and Neanderthals is the same, um, and uh, and that just that there was that freak possibility that some of them interbred and managed to have fertile offspring. But yeah, it's a really interesting time at the moment. I think in looking at 
uh, at Paleolithic, lower and middle Paleolithic stuff. You took the words right out of my mouth, honestly. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that <laughs> like, literally, everything you just said, I was like, yes, yes, this is it, this is it. <laughs> because, uh, no, for me, that's, you know, one of the, one interesting thing. Actually, I have a, I have a, a lot of arguments with a, uh, my friend, he did uh, biomedical sciences, and he's very interested right. in all science communication and blah, 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 blah. I mean, like, and he has a problem with uh, me saying stuff like, I think it was, uh, you know, obviously the evolution of lactase persistence, or well, the yeah. appearance of such, you know, such high levels of lactase persistence in Europe, uh, you know, in uh, in some populations like Denmark, it's almost ninety nine percent, whereas at the start of the Holocene, it was something like seventeen percent, and uh, I was like saying, well, you know, we have to have some sort of cultural influence because it biologically doesn't make sense that this just, you know, happened you know, by random chance, and that, you know, we all kind of just went along with it. You know, instead it was actually, had a cultural selection pressure, not just, not a biological one. And sexual selection as well, probably. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, actually, what am I talking well, about? No. <laughs> oh, you like drinking milk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love you so much. Um, no, um, I think what I meant, yeah, it, I mean, it was, it would be selected for if you were healthier because you were able to pro- process lactose post-infancy. Um, and therefore be more likely to leave more offspring and then your gene then your gene would spread throughout the whole population but i mean 17 percent that's like that's nothing if we had a room of 100 people that's 17 people but yet we had them continually passing on these genes i mean this it does sound it does sound impressive doesn't it it's it's one of those big big questions thinking you know in a few thousand years the number of generations that you could get through i mean it really does it it would uh, what, what's the word for the, um, it would, it would be an exponential growth mm. in the, in the frequency of that gene in the population, I think. So, um, I, I don't think it's impossible. No, no. Sometimes course. these things do seem improbable, yeah. though. Don't well, they? I mean, it's not impossible because we've actually got there, but, <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, yeah, it's just the method by which it happened. I think, uh, my friend was trying to say, well, it's all biological, guys. It's all biological. Culture can't change genes, guys. No, I don't, I ref- we're just organic oh, machines. Yeah. We're organic machines. So I'm like, oh, God, not this again. <laughs> Cultural selection, I love it. I, mm. I think. Mm. That the meme has not yet had its day, Ooh. and by meme, I'm not talking about the pictures with the. Uh, those are image macros. <laughs> those are <laughs> image <laughs> macros. Those aren't memes. You know, singular pictures. They're called image They're macros, called and this really annoys me because I'm pedantic I and stuff. That? But yeah, meme is the kind of the category it's in, not the actual image itself. God damn it! Sorry, and I actually think it's called. It's actually pronounced meme. Meme, yeah, that makes me well. I, that, I say, yeah, I say meme as well, but that's because I've read it. Read kind it. of rhymes with G. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But he, apparently, Mr. Dawkins himself, who coined the term, yeah. uh, actually said it's meme. But oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, it, well, you know, we don't have to listen to that. <laughs> it's it's like uh, you know the the image format GIF. You know, the, yes. dir- the the guy who made it was like, no, it's GIF, guys. What have you been saying? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no! It's the same. It's the same. I, I, it I, is I, what we say. That is memetics in, m- m- in action. M- m- memetics? <laughs> oh, perfectly chosen word there. Sorry. Go on. Tell me about the maymays. <laughs> the maymays. Um, well, I'm particularly fond of this theory, and my, and my husband's doing some work on it. But it's, it's basically... Um, so a meme is is analogous, uh, an analogous even, 
analogous to a gene. So it's or a meme is mm-hmm. analogous to a gene. Um, it's a, a unit of um, cultural information that replicates and uh, it gets passed around and is inherited. Blah blah blah. Um, and the the methods are um, through. Uh, communication with your peers or communication between parents and children um, uh, and now mass communication as well of course yeah. and more recently so um, but for you know for a long time it, uh, uh, it's difficult to see how that could actually transform our idea of how cultures work and how cultures evolve um, but the main point I think is that Sometimes people are making choices that they don't, and they don't realize they're making choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't realize that their, their options are constrained based on the cultural environment around them. So this is why I sometimes object to the idea of agency. Um, because I don't think that, I think that people, um, do and did have some agency, um, yeah. to control their own lives. But it's negotiated in the cultural context in which they live. Exactly. And, but also, very much constrained by the cultural mm. context in which they oh, live. Yeah. Um, so they're not, they can't make an infinite number of choices. Mm. They can, uh, and some of the choices they make, um, they think that they view, it's this idea of free will, isn't it? Um, we <laughs> think we've got free will, but actually <laughs> we're, um, mm. and not at all in a religious sense, but we're, we're <laughs> confined by our experiences, yeah. Yeah. the world in which we're living at that point. And maybe mm-hmm. the breakfast that we had that morning and how it makes us feel, you know. And oh, you're making me hungry. I just realised <laughs> my breakfast. Have you not eaten? My breakfast was, oh, no. uh, I think, about like half eight. Yeah, you need to have some lunch, mate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not feeling well. And I need to do a podcast. No. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I'm stop fine. it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think that sometimes our choices are made quite automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, and, and part of habit forming, I suppose, as well, but, um, that there is this blind, uh, blind autumn. Uh, we're not an automaton, but, um. The subconscious kind of controls us in a way in certain patterns that kind of help us to yeah. live out our lives. Thank no you. worries. Exactly. I was wondering, do you think that there's maybe a culture of archaeologists? As in, you know, uh, archaeology seems to attract a certain amount of people, and archaeologists seem to behave in a certain way, you know? For people who study the past and past cultures quite a lot, I think sometimes archaeologists are blind to the way they behave. Like, for example, right? Tell me, an arche- name me an archaeologist who doesn't enjoy terrible jokes like seriously every archaeologist i know has a number of terrible jokes about the holocene you know in their back <laughs> pocket number two yeah a lot of archaeologists male archaeologists have beards and we don't know why we don't know why male archaeologists they love beards right point me out a clean shaven archaeologist quite a large subset that don't have them <laughs> oh, Come on. oh hey they're not real archaeologists. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'd quite like a beard myself. That's what it's, it's always been a dream of mine. But uh, I'll have to wait another thirty years or so, I suppose. I'm but not, um, sorry, go on. <laughs> you know, I, this is it. Uh, uh, there is there is this 
um, not only within archaeology but outside archaeology of what an archae- this this, yeah. this um, perception of what an archaeologist fashion is. Fashion sense? Um, what's fashion sense? Is it in the past? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what's the point? Why why be fashionable? Because you know this isn't what they were wearing in the Neolithic. Ah, oh, dear. <laughs> uh, do some of us spend? I mean, I I'm going to get myself a Neolithic dress made. Actually, um, one of my uh, my best present for Christmas was. Oh. Three meters of nettle fabric. Uh, see, came all the way from the see Himalayas. What I'm saying? So yeah, we are a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think to me, archaeologists, um, they do uh, archaeology tracks a certain kind of people, and I think there's also a bit of reinforcement because the thing is, I actually think a Neolithic dress or Neolithic garments sound really really cool. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, that's because I'm an archaeologist and we're, we're trained. <laughs> but I mean, like, I, I think archaeologists yeah. also like jokes, and I think there's a yeah. lot of wonderful de- like, to me, comedy is very effective at taking down authority and ultimately that's what we need. When we talk about the past, we need to decol- uh, decolonialize it, and we need to apply comedy. You know, people think a comedy is only used for mocking, but I disagree. I think comedy is a way we negotiate with truth. And uh, I don't know if you've heard recently about... Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm steering the conversation to the Irish famine comedy that was um, asked oh, gosh, about yeah. by Channel 4. And I'm wanting yeah. to do an entire episode on this because uh, actually... I know it sounds really weird, but I'm actually uh, I'm interested and intrigued by the idea. I'm not repulsed by it. And the reason yeah. being is that, like, for me, you can deal with very dangerous topics with comedy, with- yes. but with respect. Now, one of my ways of saying this is Blackadder goes forth. Our dear yeah. friend Michael Cove does not like Blackadder. Because Blackadder apparently makes the British Army seem like a, you know a bunch of raving lunatics and useless at the job, and uh, portraying them in a comedic way is you know a way of mocking them. But I would argue, actually, um, you know, when you have never been in war before, and that's the first time you've been in war, you recruited at a very young age. You need to deal with what you're seeing. I mean, you're seeing your friends being blown apart. You're basically being told by your superiors, "Go run, uh, go run into the gunfire and get shot down." Uh, I think uh, comedy is an effective way of dealing with something, and I think it's something very British as well. And I would, and, and I, well, yeah, I'd and- say very UK-ish. And Irish, and I'd say, um, especially because the payoff for Blackadder was so good, I'm sure everybody's seen it by now. But like the final episode of Blackadder makes the entire series absolutely stunning. Um, yeah, um, it really does. I mean, I- what, what do you think about comedy in that sense? I mean, would you agree with me? Would you disagree with me? Are there some things in which we can't be comedic about? And that's a wider story, a question, but. I'll wow, throw, I'll, throw that that your, I'll throw that your way. I mean, especially in the context of history. Uh, it is, it's a big question. I think that it is difficult sometimes because of the sense of guilt that uh, we have over some of the things that happened in the past, like the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. How yeah. I don't know how you would do a comedy about that, but I expect horrible histories have tried mm. it. I don't know. Well, Horrible Histories um, is a fantastic show. And, uh, it's brilliant. And I, 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 brilliant. I, I, again, for the same reason, is that they 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 take facts of history and then spin the, them comedically and force us 
through the lens of ridiculousness to negotiate what the real truth is. Yes, but doesn't I? I wonder whether you have to be in the know to actually um, be able to negotiate that. And if horrible histories is, for instance, it's aimed at mm. what nine to eleven year olds mainly. Um, are they able to negotiate that? Are they able to see, okay, it wasn't actually like this, they're being silly about it. I mean, I don't know. Um, it's, it, I think sometimes our appreciation of comedy and the comedic nature of things and our bad jokes about the Holocene come from um, our, our background knowledge, and it wouldn't be a joke if we didn't know that. That, that is a very interesting um, point, actually, and one I hadn't considered. Um, yeah, no, you're, I think you're right. <laughs> No. But I think I think some I, I'm not I'm not anti comedy no. at all, of course. Anti comedy? <laughs> Who's anti comedy? <laughs> like that's a joke in itself. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, no, I hate humor. Humor of any kind. You just told me a joke. How can you be so insulting? <laughs> there you. <laughs> no, I, I have to meet an anti comedist and comedyist. No, and I um, but I wonder. I really do wonder about other people's. Mm. Um, a perceptions of, of these things. Mm. Like, for instance, mm. there was a horrible history sketch where um, the Bronze Age people came and uh, were trying to convert, trying to sell bronze uh-huh. and um, a change of career yeah. to flint nappers. Um, and it was it was really interesting how um, they were it it were you know they were using. Uh-huh. Um, uh, kind of modern selling methods yeah. to say, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, this wonderful material that's going to revolutionize blah, yeah. blah, blah. And, yeah. you know, you can do it in half the time and all this kind yeah. of thing. Um, and I wondered, it, it's not really mm-hmm. clear, I don't think, to anybody outside archaeology how that, that did actually come mm-hmm. about. How did people start using bronze but, instead of, instead of, uh, um, uh, napping flint? Um, and why? Um, and th- so that would, I think that would leave some people kind of thinking, oh, well, yeah, it couldn't have been quite like that, but I guess it's, I don't, I don't really See, know. But that's perfect. But maybe no, that's, that's, good. that's perfect. That's what you want. You want people to get interested. So w- what I mean yeah. is that the ridiculousness of that goes, leaves people kind of a little bit unsatisfied. And they'll be like, right, okay, no, that's ridiculous. What actually happened? And then they go and look it up. That's, that's what you want to happen. That's what you do want to happen, yeah. You want them to go and look it up. You want absolutely. them to be slightly f- frustrated and just taking it on. Because this is my problem with the, the, you know, this idea of media consumption is that we just consume. We don't interact we with don't it. Interact. I think we actually do. We mediate with it. We make, we make our own stories in relation to these stories. And that's why we need archaeologists to really accept um, the kind of mantle of comedy and really need to accept the mantle of making a story out of something so that we don't just have a set of data points that we have something else that challenges people to engage properly and now i need to calm down because i'm getting really heated sorry go on please (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think you're right i think um yeah we need to experiment with different ways of of engaging people with archaeology um uh using media a lot more because that's that is how a lot of people actually interact with the world um uh and so you know your podcast i'm thinking i i would love to film some storytelling that would be quite serious i think um but 
um, would would incorporate that amb- ambiguity about mm. past that we don't know really, and uh, uh, promote in the children that sense of okay, well, this is this is a story of how somebody thinks it is. Is it really like that? Can I can I come up with some ideas? Um, so that's what I'd I quite like to to do. But I, you know, I, as I told you before, I don't have very good skills myself in the kind of audiovisual um, world. So I need to uh, uh, find somebody who. Everybody can always learn. Don't worry, don't worry. I know, but do I have time? <laughs> ah, oh. that's the thing. Time no. is something that we know we work with every day, but yet we've none of. And uh, that's actually where I, I like to. I like to kind of wrap up a little bit, and because uh, yeah. we've encroached upon the fifty-minute mark. Uh, yeah. uh, so it's lovely it's been talking to you. If people are interested in schools prehistory, where can they find it? It's very easy. It's schoolsprehistory.co.uk. And I'm on Twitter as well, uh, SCH Prehistory. Um, and there's a Facebook, Facebook page as well. Um, and do just, you know, just chat because it's really me and a couple of other people. Um, it looks like a big entity, but it's not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shh, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully they'll be seeing much more mm-hmm. stuff going on, on the website soon. Excellent, thank you very much. And if you're interested, I've made sure that all the links are available in the show notes below. Of course, if you're really interested in uh, archaeology at all, remember that the Archaeology Podcast Network here releases six different shows. And of course, we've got a new show this month called Archie Fantasies, which talks about the myths and how to debunk the really, really weird ones. So definitely check that one out in addition to of course the crm archaeology podcast the struggling archaeologist guide to getting dirty and that never ceases to crack me up and of course profiles and archaeotech so if you're interested in any of the archaeology podcast stuff check out www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com for all the latest or check it out on itunes or stitcher radio thank you very very much and thank you to my guest for uh, appearing this week Thank you very much, Tristan. And remember, we've got some wonderful episodes coming up. We're going to talk to people about, of course, Time Team. We are going to explore what it definitely means to make a comedy about something horrible. And we'll be talking about conferences uh, in the future. So check out that much and more and see you in a fortnight. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.